Welcome to the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. This week's show was recorded Monday, January 22nd, 2007. For comments, show notes, please check out our website at www.the-spokesmen.com. For further information on how to contact any one of the people appearing on today's show, please stay tuned to the end. We'll give you all of our email addresses. Until then, here are the Spokesmen. Welcome to episode 11 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. We have a fairly full house today, starting with Tim Grawl from the Crooked Cog Network. Good morning, Tim. Good morning. Next up is Donna Tosi from Kryptonite. Donna, how are you today? Good morning. Good morning. Happy Monday. <laughs> Happy cold Monday, pretty much all across the country. And Carlton, how is it over on your side of the world? Carlton Reed from Bike Base. Hi there. It's cold, very cold, but not as cold as where you are, I'm sure. <laughs> well, for, for those of you who are wondering how could it be so cold in Southern California, I'm not in Southern California today, and that is the reason. It's uh, snowy and um, I believe below zero, so um, it's just cold here. That's all I can say. Well, let's get down to the cycling news, if we will. Carlton, you brought up something to the group that I thought was very interesting and something that we all needed to at least look at and discuss, and this was a speech given by Professor David Gordon Wilson. Why don't you tell us who he is and a little bit about the speech that he gave, and then we can we can talk about his points. Sure. Well, Professor Wilson, um, the name, if it rings a bell, David Wilson, is the author of Bicycling Science, and it's like a two-inch thick book on, on exactly what uh, the title says. But it goes into, you know, how come you're staying upright, the spinning of wheels, aerodynamics, all of these in, in, intensely uh, academic subjects. He goes into in, in, in great depth, even though he's not, this isn't actually his field. His field is gas turbines. That's what he's got all these, um, his qualifications in. But he's a very, very much a, uh, an uber-fred in that respect. And uh, his book is, is a classic of its kind because mainly it's the only one of its kind. Uh, nobody else can go up against this book. So when he does say stuff, you, you kind of listen to him because he, he's been around talking about cycling since the 1950s. He's won all sorts of uh, records for his human-powered uh, vehicle exploits. Uh, and he's, a, he's an all-round uh, sensible guy. And he's gone to this conference in Australia, and he's said things like, we should sue the bike trade if uh, they don't produce uh, safe parts, which sounds sensible. But from I, I know from your uh, background, David, maybe you would uh, say that we're, we're a whole bunch of enthusiasts in the bike trade. We will, by the very dint of the fact that we are enthusiasts, we will spec the safe parts. And if we find anything that's not safe, it comes off pretty damn quickly. Now, in Professor Wilson's actual paper. He doesn't talk about litigation, but I think it was just some comments that he made to some journalists in Australia where he's giving this talk where the litigation thing came up. Well, I, you know, you talked about my background, and, and it's, it's funny because when I first, when you first told me about the talk that he gave, the very first, well, I had two reactions. The first was that it reminded me a bit of what happened to the light airplane industry here in the United States, and then 
what's the first thing that's in his abstract and introduction? He talks about the light airplane in industry in the United States. And for those of you that, that don't know, several years ago, most of the, the major light airplane manufacturers in the United States went out of business because they were getting sued in, in every single case. And they were, they were being found liable for airplanes that were 20, 30 years old, where there were mechanical issues. There were pilot issues. And what does that have to do with the, with the cycling industry? Well, if we had the same sort of a situation in the cycling industry where every manufacturer was getting sued for every single accident that happened and being found liable for every single accident that happened, uh, irrespective of mechanical issues, um, the age of the bike, the capabilities of the rider, the weather conditions, et cetera, et cetera, well, then I think we would quickly find cycling manufacturers going out of business. Now, having said that, Having been, having worked for manufacturers in the bike business, I can tell you that we had and have a lot of lawsuits in the cycling industry that we used to call JRA lawsuits, which are, I was just riding along when, fill in the blank. So I remember having lawsuits come across my desk when I worked for a bicycle manufacturer that literally said, I was just riding along when... I went over the handlebars and as and you know I I broke my my nose and knocked out a couple of teeth and as a result you owe me 5 million dollars. Well, when we did some investigation, what we found was, yeah, you were just riding along down five flights of stairs. Now that's a real case that we actually had. Had we not done the investigation, we might have been found liable in a case like that. There are a lot of cases like that. Having said that again, there are still cases where there are defective bike parts, there are things that happen and it seems to me that these days when they do recalls occur i mean i'm talking about recalls seems like every week or two on the fredcast so i think that the bicycle manufacturers are being responsive to this and that they are worried about making sure that their parts are safe and uh, you have the cpsc as well of course who are, who are doing the recalls with the manufacturers. So I think there's a very good record in the bike industry, along with the CPSC, of, uh, of getting these products off the market very, very quickly, if anything is found to be unsafe. Right, and like you said, there's plenty of people already filing lawsuits that don't have any case to them, so that's why I'm not a big fan of somebody encouraging more lawsuits. Well, I think that if... The, the, I agree with you, with you Tim. You know, there, there are more lawyers in the county of Los Angeles than there are in the entire country of Japan. Um, and, and I think that that's indicative of, of a problem that we have, at least here in the United States. Uh, we are lawsuit crazy. The, the Congress talks and talks about tort reform. They haven't done anything about it. Um, we don't have a, a loser pays system, and I don't want to get political, but I think that we have a lawsuit problem here in the United States. And I think that somebody encouraging people to to sue over over everything you know suing a bicycle manufacturer because a mechanic in a shop made a mistake i don't think that that's necessarily the right thing to do um, well if if the if the mechanic was trained by the manufacturer and got some sort of a certification as they do for instance in the skiing industry well maybe that's a different story but i don't think that that's the case in the bicycle industry donna you work for a parts manufacturer. Now, I, I understand that you make locks. I've got to think that, that you guys sometimes see mm, frivolous lawsuits. 
Well, I think, as you said, I think that we live in a litigious society here in the U.S. and that a lot of people, as in the case that you gave, tend to sue first and look at all of the pieces, if you will, of the situation later. Um, and, and I'm not a big fan of that. Um, but as far as our company, we don't make a, a safe, something that would be considered uh, a safety device or something like that. So, you know, if you don't have your lock on your bike properly and it, in your bracket properly and it falls off, well, I guess that could cause an accident. But in most cases, those aren't the types of things that we see. Um, so that's not something I can really comment on there. However, we did make at one point a quick release. And as Carlton said, there are agencies, as in the UK, in the US, that you have to go through with safety standards and make sure that those parts are up to those safety standards and they're government regulated. So each of these companies, these bike manufacturers or parts manufacturers should be going through that anyway. And then they have their own quality control. So as you said, if there's an accident or something does happen, because things do happen, you don't, in quality control, you don't test every single part or, you know, you, you test a, a group in a batch that, um, it, you know, if it's, a, if it's something that the shop did or something you yourself did, I don't think you can go back to the manufacturer. I actually, to stay on topic but get off topic a little bit, I, I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago with a gentleman whose company makes motorcycle exhausts, and he said that they've had threatens of lawsuits or maybe even had lawsuits, I don't know, because people have burned themselves on the exhaust after they put them on. And he's having to write language in his inserts saying, you know, after your motorcycle is run, this piece will be hot. Hmm. Now, you know, and it goes to the same bit of you see in your car, you know, when you put those little cardboard things in your in your windshield to keep your car from getting too hot in the summertime, do not drive with this in your windshield. And I think you're going to see inserts that will become bigger and bigger and almost like a novel in any part or bike or anything that you get so that manufacturers can cover themselves from all these lawsuits. And I kind of wonder where that stops. You know, where do, where do we stop that? So I, I worry about this gentleman's comments and how far some people may take them if they're taken out of context. Well, we'd hope to bring Tim Jackson on from Mozzie Bikes. He's one of our regular contributors here on The Spokesman. He's over in Taiwan on business right now, and we tried to bring him in, but unfortunately the Internet connection from over there is not that great. Uh, you may recall that there was an earthquake over there a couple of weeks ago, and it totally messed up the Internet connections from that whole part of the world. So, Tim, we hope you're having a good trip. We know that you would say great things, and um, we'll look forward to talking to you on the next spokesman. But, but let's get back to the topic um, at hand. One of the things, Carlton, that I noticed from the paper that you sent around to all of us was that the professor was talking about some, some fairly old products, and I didn't really have a chance to delve into the, the, the paper in great detail. Was he just using some of these older products as an example of, of things that have happened in the past or, of, or of, of items that we should be concerned about on our bikes today? Because some of these, these items I'm seeing look like they were on old chromoly bikes from the, you know, the late 80s. Oh, yes. I mean, he is stressing that these are anecdotes that's happened to him personally on these parts. But he's using it as an example of, well, he found these flaws and he went to the suppliers, who he, who he does name, but he went to the suppliers concerned and they didn't do anything. 
with uh, with his concerns, and that he went on um, probably some very early Usenet uh, topic boards, um, probably in the 80s, early 90s, and he was he was mentioning the same things, posting the same comments that he sent to the suppliers, and that bike mechanics came on and ripped into him and uh, just said it was it was a JRA thing, but for him, now clearly he does know his stuff. So it's not quite the same, and, and he, I'm sure he had very valid reasons. But he would then make um, very small little devices which would just be, just take the safety to, to another level and, and would cost uh, just a couple of cents to, to make. And he said, and, and the suppliers wouldn't even uh, countenance that. But I agree that the, the parts he was talking about are not, are not current parts, but it was just an example of how the bike industry, maybe at that time, uh, wasn't very uh, open to uh, suggestions of uh, making stuff uh, even safer than it already was. Well, Tim, let's talk about that for a second because a lot of, of your readers, a lot of the people who, who come to the Crooked Cog Network are are in, in mountain biking and uh, some of them are may, may or may not be doing downhill and some of the, the more extreme, if you will, um, kinds of sports. As as the technology has advanced, you know we've gotten into you know, first it was suspension forks and then dual suspension bikes, and now of course we're into the the twenty niners. Do do you find and and are you finding from your readers that people are satisfied with the level of technology? And and again from that I don't mean that the features, but from the safety aspect in their bikes. Are people pretty much satisfied with the safety of their bikes? Do they feel that they can be um, confident in what they're riding and where they're riding? Yeah, on a whole, I don't, I don't ever get much sentiment against the bike companies that they just don't care about safety or anything. And, um, and just as um, you mentioned before, you know, you get recalls coming across your desk all the time that you're posting and reminding people. Uh, so I think, I think the current system is is doing a good job of uh, bike companies being held responsible uh, when things come up, and then them doing a good job of issuing a recall. Um, and while you know, I do think there can be problems and uh, lawsuits are sometimes needed. I just don't like the idea of people pushing more lawsuits, especially when there seems to be a system in place that, that's working now. Because, like I said, there's not a lot of sentiment out there of people just uh, being timid when they're on their bikes. They beat them up pretty good and there's never, or there's very rarely many problems. Well, between all of our problems on Skype and the fact that uh, all of us seem to think that that the the safety systems and the, and the, the checks and balances in the cycling industry seem to be working right, I think that we should probably move on. So the next thing I wanted to talk about, and Tim Grawl, I'm hoping that, that you can give us the background on this, or, or maybe Donna can help you fill in, but there was uh, an interesting exchange going on on the Kool-Aid site that's... Um, bicyclemarketingwatch.blogspot.com and I thought that maybe since Tim Jackson isn't here that Tim Grawl and Donna that you might just sort of want to fill us in on that and then we can have a discussion about it. Tim? Well basically uh, Tim Jackson posted um, a couple thoughts from a couple different people um, himself included on what can be done to help the commuting portion of our industry since it's um, it's such a huge uh, portion and can uh, lead to a lot of future bike sales if people are, are start commuting more on their bikes than uh, by car. And uh, there's just different discussions, um, you know, 
will tax incentives um, or uh, government incentives for people make the difference, or do we just need uh, better infrastructure and uh, better education for drivers? Um, so there was just a discussion back and forth, and uh, you know I I can go back and forth as well. I don't think the um, tax incentives are, are will work as well as just uh, education. Uh, I think education is a big part in a lot of the country uh, where uh, bikes just aren't on the road that much and so drivers assume that they're not supposed to be. And so I think the first thing that needs to be done is education and then from there uh, getting involved in uh, the future planning of your cities uh, to include bikeways and uh, safer safer zones for bike to, bikes to travel. But I know there's uh, there's opinions on lots of different sides of this subject so I'd like to hear what what y'all think on this subject. Donna, you seem to look a lot at, 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 at issues like this. You talk about uh, marketing in the bike industry and, and things like that. W- what's your take on something like this? I think Tim Grawl actually hit on a perfect um, scenario. I think that when there are a lot of building, a lot of building that's happening in the U.S. particularly, and I don't know, Carlton, um, if he can talk about this a little bit differently from the UK or European perspective, that in the US when you're building a new development or something like that, there's no reason why you can't put in a bike lane at the same time. I know, actually I was talking with Bob Roll back in the fall and he was saying that there are all these new developments going in in his area of Colorado and they're not building bike lanes, which he couldn't understand, and I, I tend to agree with him. So I think that Tim Grawl is is right in saying that we need to educate people and educate builders and educate towns as, as they're expanding that this is a great thing for your town. If you can have people around on bicycles and kids going to school on bikes and having safe routes to schools and having these bike lanes, it's wonderful. I know that it's hard to add them after the fact. So and and it won't solve any problems if you know just the new construction, but it's a good place to start. I also think that there's some sort of I don't want to say stigma, that's not the right word, but in the U.S., it's almost perceived as you're a little odd if you're out on your bike. It's it's such a car society, I think, and, and I don't know if that's because we travel long distances. You know, it's not like 20 or 30 years ago where maybe you worked in the town you lived, everybody commutes an hour or so. I, mean, I, don't, I know Tim Jackson commutes, I think, an hour a day each way. It's a little hard to ride your bike that far. I know he would love to, but it, you know it's a little hard to ride your bike that far. I have no excuse, and I still don't. I only work seven miles away from my house, so um, and I think it's convenience, it's time, all of that type of type of thing. I think you're right. I think that there is that there definitely is a stigma associated with people who who are bicycle commuters. I don't know why that is. Uh, th- there's that there's that feeling that they're what is, what's the term? You know they. They like granola, or they—they're just, you know, sort of on the fringe of society, and and that is so totally not true. I think we all know bicycle commuters, and they—they they run the gamut from being you know, the most conservative politically to the most liberal conservative, and excuse me, excuse me, liberal uh, politically, and everything in between. And so I don't know where that stigma came from, but you're absolutely right, and there certainly is an attitude among motorists, as Tim just said that maybe we're not even supposed to be out there on the roads. 
Um, you get that attitude all the time from people. Carlton, what's it like in the UK when it comes to, to commuters? Do, do they have the same, um, are they perceived in the same way that they are here in the US? I think we'll probably get a, a bit of a better rap, uh, especially in places like London, for instance, where cycle commuting is just going through the roof. Uh, because of the congestion charge. So you start charging motorists uh, a lot of money for going into city centres and a goodly percentage of them think, oh, I can cycle that instead. And so there's a lot of newbie uh, cycle commuters in, in, in London. And that brings its own problems because you know, your hardened cycle commuter you know, has an exoskeleton, knows when to avoid cars and is, is, knows what they're doing. And these new people, uh, I'm sure it, it uh, Education comes pretty fast out on the roads, but they don't know the, the, the same kind of etiquette of how to deal with traffic. And I know a lot of the hardened uh, cycle commuters have been complaining in the UK by, by their brethren coming on board because they're doing strange things and they're actually uh, giving uh, cycle commuters a, an even worse name than they already had. But, of course, the, the more the merrier. So the more people you get out there, you, you have almost a Beijing scenario of the, if there's 50 people at the traffic lights on bikes, then it doesn't matter how fast the car is, it's not going to get through. Bikes rule. What about in a place like uh, Denmark, for instance, or, or perhaps Holland, where, where bicycle commuting really is a way of life uh, and, and very, very much accepted, but it's it's their cities are designed differently than perhaps what Tim you were talking about. There, there are the cars on the road, and then on the sidewalk there is a designated area for bikes, and then a designated area for pedestrians. So you're talking about a very different kind of bicycle commuter than what we have here in the U.S. And it sounds like over in the U.K. In that these are people who are riding much slower than a lot of our bicycle commuters here uh, and are very and they have to deal with not only the cars but also the pedestrians and somebody said to me recently well maybe that's what we need here we need that sort of a model but I wonder whether or not uh, American and British bicycle commuters would accept that sort of a model Tim what do you think about that you talked about city design do you think that that's something that that we would accept here what having them on the sidewalk as yeah, well? Yeah. Uh, I think I think in some areas that's going to be the easier route. Uh, for instance, like Donna said, some of the roads once they're built, uh, it's going to be hard to go in and add a bi bike lane later. So maybe widening something like the sidewalk would be the first choice. Uh, I think um, I don't know. I think that may be. I think that will cause just as much uh, turmoil as having them on the roads where. Uh, the people walking will think they don't belong there, and the people on the roads will think they don't belong there. Uh, but a lot of places, that may be a good choice to add it in, uh, in places where adding a bike lane to the road is just not possible. You know what, what I've found? In Southern California, we have, we have two extremes. We have the, the Los Angeles extreme, where there is no room, uh, no, no good room for bikes on the road. Uh, and then in um, in like Orange County, there are bike lanes everywhere, and it's very very common to see the bikes out there on the road, and, and they seem to be very accepted. Um, so I, I think that that it can be done. But like you said, if there are roads that are are already built, and if there are cities that are already built, take New York City for instance. I don't know where we're going to put more bikes 
and how we're going to make it easier. Donna, do you think that, that some of this comes down to the education of the general public uh, to, to awareness on the part of motorists? And, and what do you think about some of these, these share the road license plates that are coming up um, all over the country? You know, these, these special license plates, I've seen them in Texas, Colorado's trying to get one, California's trying to get one, where they say share the road. Do you think stuff like that helps? I think anything like that helps. Absolutely. One thing that I would, would add to the discussion is that I think one piece we haven't talked about is employers and how they can help and how they can help to either grow their bike commuters or help to educate the, their employees by adding either incentives. I know here in Boston there are some companies that will add, that will help you pay for um, public transportation. But I wonder how many people don't ride their bike because they think, oh, in the summertime I may be sweating and then I would have to sit all sticky or whatever in my chair. And Is it simply adding a shower into the bathrooms or a locker area or something that's relatively easy to do for an employer possibly um, to encourage more people to ride their bikes, maybe give a little more flex time, um, be a little more understanding if somebody you know comes in drenched or whatever be it in the summertime from sweat or the it gets caught in a rainstorm um, you know I think all of those things will help I think the license plates absolutely do help it shows that motorists understand that we should share the road that as you said David earlier that um, instead of having the attitude that cyclists shouldn't be here this is a road so it's for a car or a motorcycle um, I think all of that helps. You know, Tim Grawl just sent me a picture. Tim, tell me about the, tell everybody about the picture you just sent, and I'll make sure that I put a uh, a link in the show notes. I found this uh, picture on the Cyclicious blog a, about a couple weeks ago, and it's a it's a city sign that was put up by the government, and it says "Bicyclists allowed use of full lane, change lanes to pass bikes," and that to me is one of the best ways uh, to educate the drivers because it's obvious that it's a government sign and it's letting them know that bicyclists are allowed use of the roads and so I mean that could even be another you know first step towards uh, just educating drivers letting them know that uh, bikes are allowed on the roads I think this is a this brings up a really good point how many times have you been riding someplace where it was dangerous to be all the way over on the right-hand side of the road, or in Carlton's case, the left-hand side of the road. And so you, you pull out and you take a little bit more of that lane because in most parts of the country, uh, that's what you're allowed to do. And some motorist pulls up behind you and is, is, is honking and then gets up next to you and starts wagging fingers at you and screaming in your face and telling you how you, sh you, know, you should get the blank off the road. It seems like it happens all the time. Now, obviously, you can't hold up traffic, and you know it's it's just like a car. If there's a certain number of cars behind you, you got to get over and let them pass. But if it's not safe, you need to be where it's safe. And and just like this sign says, you are allowed use of the full lane if you need it. I don't think that most cyclists understand that, and I don't think that a large majority of motorists understand that. And so I think that education is important. And Donna, like you said. Every little thing that we can do, even if it's just a, a license plate, I think will help. Uh, how much do you think our elected officials can help us with this, um, no matter what you think politically about whether uh, Parliament or Congress can be 
can be effective. Do you think that, that, that lobbying efforts like, for instance, the, the National Bike Summit that the League of American Bicyclists puts on every year, do you think stuff like that can help? Carlton, what have you found in the UK? Has, has, have lobbying efforts worked? Well, you've got a much better um, scenario there with uh, the Democrats taking over and with uh, a few key people getting into key transport positions. So you, you're going to be transformed in the next few years um, for the better, uh, hopefully. In the UK, we've still, still got politicians who laugh at uh, uh, any suggestions on bikes. For instance, I did a, a story in my mag where the transport spokesman for the opposition party uh, was talking about um, a transportation study that came out which dared to say we should give more room to, to bikes. And uh, in Parliament, uh, this politician uh, said that the person who put that into the transportation study has a rich future in comedy. And he just giggled about it. And it, it's, we have that kind of uh, level of discourse uh, in the UK. And not enough high, high people, certainly in Parliament, are cyclists, whereas in the US you, you do seem to be breaking ground. Donna, you think that's the case? Do you think that, that, that a successful lobbying effort might allow our, our elected officials to maybe find some way to make, I don't know, whether more education programs or just, just bring about greater awareness of, of who we are and why we're out there and that it's, it can be dangerous for us and that we need more bike lanes and we need more bike ways? I would hope so. I don't know... I don't know. I guess that's being very optimistic, but I, th I think that Carlton's right. I think we have a good shot at it. I think that there have that you know the bike summit in the spring has become bigger and bigger every year. I think that our local coalitions, you know, every region has a coalition, or most regions do anyway in the U.S. Um, and supporting them is is very important. You know, Chicagoland Bicycle Federation and Mass Bike here in Massachusetts and um, all of the ones, San Francisco, Bay, we work with many, many of them at, at Kryptonite. And I think it's very important to support them because they truly are the ones on the ground regionally and locally all the time trying to lobby for your local legislation and, and bringing that into Washington. So I would say support them very much and support their events and their programs. And yeah, I think it can help. Yeah, I think that that's good advice because I think that all of us, again, no matter what end of the political spectrum we're on, I think that we've all had situations where we could, where we felt that we could use more awareness and that we could use more room out there on the road and a little bit more understanding from whether it's, like you said, whether it's employers uh, or or just the general public and motorists. I think that we need more of that. So I'd love to hear, you know what, quite frankly, I'd love to hear from the listeners on this and, and whether that's by them posting on our blog at the-spokesmen.com or by sending us emails. I'd love to hear, and we'll give you the email addresses at the end of the show, but I would love to hear uh, what you as listeners think we should be doing uh, out there. And, uh, you know, on the next show, if you've got some good comments, I'll share them with the group and we'll discuss them. So uh, please let us know what you think, because uh, by no means are we experts on everything. Uh, we're just people who have certain, certain specialties and certain experience within the bicycle community. And we're sharing that with you. So we'd love for you to share that with us now along those lines. Um, 
when I say we're not experts, sometimes we get called to task. And sometimes our listeners will tell us when they think that, that maybe we haven't um, done the, the, the listeners a service. And so there was a, a recent response on our blog. And, and curiously, uh, this was, was, was written very recently. Uh, this was written on January 10th. But curiously, it was in response to our show number five from October 17th. Uh, nevertheless, the, the listener, uh, Beck, sent us a response on our blog in which they weren't, they said that they were disappointed with, quote, how uneducated but opinionated uh, some of the panelists really are. Now, honestly, Beck, I, I tried to follow everything that you said in, in your post, and, and we've shared it back and forth among those of us that are on the show. Um, there, there were some, I think that you probably wrote it fairly quickly, and so we understand that. But the bottom line of it was that Beck felt that we were misinformed in some ways, uh, that we were spreading misinformation when it comes to the Floyd Landis situation. Um, for instance, a quote out of Beck's post, I really suggest you get an expert to join your panel for this discussion as you are misleading the public about the effect of drugs and the lab's position in this argument. Uh, and then later on, he goes on, he or she goes on to say, don't believe Floyd's website. Wait for both sides of the story. Unfortunately, Floyd isn't a chemist and may not have known the risk he was putting himself at when he applied a testosterone patch. Well, the problem, Beck, is that we don't know whether or not Floyd did apply a testosterone patch, although your, your, your post seems to indicate that you feel pretty certain when you said what you just said there that, that perhaps he did. Uh, I'm not so sure about that, and I think that one thing that, that may or may not come through in, in my podcasting and and in and on this show is that at least for me my jury's out i quite frankly don't know which way to go on this i i see both sides of this argument uh i think that all of the evidence hasn't been presented and when it is there will be a result but i really want to go around the table because we've spent a lot of time talking about floyd we've spent a lot of time talking about doping and and again none of us at least unless you guys are hiding something from me. None of us are, are scientists, and none of us have, have, have worked in, in drug testing labs, nor have any of us been professional cyclists on the pro tour. Uh, we just are presenting our opinions, and, and I believe that they are informed. But I really would like to hear from each of you and, and hear what your thoughts are on what Beck has to say. So let's start with Carlton. Well, I'm no expert in uh, the ingestion or the application of testosterone, obviously. Um, but I go to, to other experts to find out their points of view. And the, the, the whole discussion that uh, Beck was talking about has been done to death on uh, the Daily Politon uh, forums. And the consensus is her position is just not true. Now, completely separate to that, I, I did a petition a while ago um, to support uh, Floyd. And it's it's relatively dormant. Now and again, it gets um, some interesting comments. But just the other day, on the 18th of January, I got um, an email from, and I'm not going to say his name, A, because uh, I, I don't think I'll, I'll publish it, but also because it, it sounds Polish. <laughs> I've got no idea how I'd even start to say this. But he is the Professor of Pathology and Medicine at the Brander Cancer Research Institute. This guy has got credentials and it's 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 what four sentences should i just read this out yeah please go ahead um he, he's he's actually, he's actually put uh, this reply on the on the, the the floyd petition using his own name so this is not somebody who's saying this uh, anonymously 
testosterone is an anabolic drug. It takes days or weeks for testosterone or any other anabolic drug to have an effect in terms of buildup of muscle. Landis is accused of taking testosterone the day before the stage race. With such short time, testosterone would have a negative effect on the athlete's ability to perform because the energy, in brackets here, ATP, whatever that is, instead of going to power the muscle, will go to synthesize protein. It is a scientific nonsense to claim that a shot of testosterone just before the stage race helped him to win. I am an MD and scientist working in the field of cell and molecular bio biology, and I am amazed how much nonsense discussion on this topic is being carried out in the media. So he's pretty much 100%, uh, 180 degree refuting exactly what, what Beck was saying. So she was saying, go and get an expert on your program. Well, there's an expert, and that's what he said. So, uh, end of story. And that seems to be a lot of what we've talked about here on the show, is that, is that the scientific evidence seems to be that testosterone applied in the way that it's alleged that Floyd would have applied it in order for those test results to come out the way they did would not have had a positive effect and I think that that's what we've talked about time after time on the show uh, is, is exactly what that physician just said so I think that that's important. Can I, can I just add David sorry yeah. to, to take a bit of uh, airspace here but then people at, at uh, time listening to this some of them might then go uh, nod and go ah yes but the reason there was T testosterone in his sample were, wasn't because he took a patch that day or the day before it's because he infused blood from a previous time when he was taking lots of testosterone. Again, that, if, if people think that's, that's somehow uh, their hidden truth and that, that's, that's, uh, they know the knowledge here, again, that's been done to death on the, the forums of uh, Daily Peloton and the Trust But Verify uh, blog has also done this to death. That theory and it is very much a theory, and I, I had eminent people coming up to me in the weeks after the, this theory, theory first uh, came out say, ah, did you know, this is what he did. It was infused blood. They, they took this theory upon themselves as an explanation. And scientifically, that theory is just blown out of the water completely. And I don't think we've done that here. I don't think we've, we've engaged in that kind of conjecture. I think that we've done exactly what you just said, Carlton. We've, 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 we've looked at what the experts have said, and we've, we've then given our opinions on that. But I don't think we've said, oh, you know, it was Nazi frogmen or, or those kinds of things, mm -hmm. right? We, we, we just said... This is what people are saying, and this is what we believe based on what we've read. Uh, and so, you know, I, at least that's the way I, I perceive what we've done. Donna, you've, you're sort of new to the game, but you've been listening to what we've had to say on this issue for a while. Um, what do you think about, about what our, our listener had to say? I'm just glad that people are commenting. <laughs> but <laughs> um, I think that to, to address Beck, that I am very opinionated. And I know it, and I probably preface a lot of my comments, or I should, with this is my opinion. And I, I think, I, I hope I did in that, that episode anyway, that these were my opinions. And as Carlton and David both said, that we look at what the experts have said and add a little bit of our own feeling or thought into them because we're not robots and we do have our own opinions. Um, I'm not a blood expert. I have said that many, many times, if not here, then in other places where I have been interviewed. But I can, as Carlton did, look at the evidence or look at what people have said, what experts have said, and come to my own conclusions and opinions. And, and that's what 
what I was talking about when in this in this um, podcast that that Beck's talking about was my own opinions and you know in the way I look at it is it's also why we have a comment section so we can hear other people's opinions and I'm really glad that Beck did take the time to come and put a comment as with everyone else who has commented and I hope that we would generate even more comments going forward um, and have people feel free to leave their comments and suggestions for us hopefully um, what they would like to hear in the podcast what they have to say about what we talked about we don't know at all and we will fully admit that and I'm certainly not an expert on Floyd or or any of the blood doping um, probably the only thing I could claim to be an expert in is loving cycling in general great points uh, really I couldn't agree with you more on all of that and you know I, I agree with you I love getting the feedback whether it's in emails or whether it's on the blog uh, and you know it, we get positive feedback we get negative feedback I love constructive criticism and I think that that's really what Beck was intending and so it is it is appreciated but as you said we are opinionated and if we weren't we wouldn't be able to talk for 45 minutes and we wouldn't be able to have this back and forth exchange and quite frank for, quite frankly that's why I brought all of you on the shows because I knew that all of you had opinions if you didn't have opinions it would be a boring show and, and so I hope that it's not a boring show and constructive criticism from our our listeners says that they also have opinions and I think that at least in my my situation that's always appreciated Tim Grawl, I'd like you to weigh in on this issue. Uh, any comments on, on this uh, in particular or on getting criticism in general? Well, um, I'm probably the most uneducated person on the show when it comes to cycling and doping. Uh, most of the shows I'm listening to Carlton and getting all of my facts from him and then trying to come up with my own opinion on the fly, which I'm pretty quick at that, uh, coming up with a very opinionated comment. But um, as far as his comment... Uh, Beck's comment, I'm happy that he's uh, coming in to criticize. Um, I think just as uh, where we have our, our, our leanings on the Floyd case, uh, I think we're all kind of waiting to see what actually comes out uh, when, uh, when all the evidence is prevented, presented. But uh, it seems the only thing I would have a problem with is it seems like he, he's already made up his mind uh, before he's seen all the facts as well. So uh, I would say that's where we're a little ahead of the game as well. Uh, we, we all have our leanings as far as the Floyd case. I think we're all kind of keeping the jury out until we see what really happens uh, in the future. So um, I'm, I appreciate the comments uh, and keep them coming. But um, just as uh, they want us to do our homework, I think uh, you should be doing your homework before you leave uh, criticisms as well. Okay, good points. You know, it, talking about Floyd, uh, th there was an article recently talking about how, how Floyd's looking for, he wants to do, have a, a second tour victory, and, and, and he's hoping that you know, perhaps he can get his name cleared, at least in advance of this tour, and if not, perhaps next year. Um, but it, it's interesting. I was talking about that with, with some folks I was with over the weekend, and one of them said that um, this whole doping issue, whether it's with Floyd or, or with uh, the Puerto affair from Spain and what happened before the 2006 Tour de France, this whole doping issue has really become pervasive, at least in the, in the eyes of the general public, even the non-cycling public. So that, for instance, this individual I was with said that, that shortly after the tour, he was speaking with his mom, and his mom said, are you one of those people who uses dope too? And, you know, he's just an average everyday cyclist, and he was blown away by the question. I think, Tim, you said something that your, your dad asked you a question recently. 
Yeah, he was here over the weekend, and I uh, mentioned Floyd Landis, and he's like, oh, that doper guy from the Tour de France. And I, I was like, no, nobody knows for sure yet if he was doing anything wrong. And But again, uh, as I think I've mentioned on an earlier show, the sentiment across the U.S. of, of casual observers of the news is that he's been he's guilty, and uh, if he shows up in the Tour de France again, all they'll think is why did they let him ride again? Didn't he uh, didn't he get caught with drugs last year? So that's where I think um, a good discussion uh, is what we could do to uh, get the word out a little more about what's going on in the cycling world, and that all cyclists aren't dopers, and it's, even if they're accused, it doesn't mean that they necessarily did it. Yeah, and I think that this is one of the reasons why we talk about it here so much, um, because it is the hot topic of conversation among cyclists and just among the general public surrounding cycling, and and it is something that, that deserves to, to see the light of day and deserves a lot of discussion and a lot of comment, uh, and that um, only by, by having that discussion can we sort of exercise these demons and try to find a way out of the perception of, of cycling being all about doping and all about drugs. You know, I think we're going to leave it here for the day. I think we've had a lot of really good discussion on, on a lot of different topics. And again, I, for one, would appreciate hearing the comments of the listeners and whether it's it's suggestions on, on how to increase bicycle commuting or suggestions on how we can improve the show or on topics that you'd like to hear. Please go to our, our blog. It's at www.the-spokesmen.com. Let us know your comments, uh, and at least for me, go ahead and, and, and send email to me. My email address is thefredcast at gmail.com, and we can go around the table and we can each share our contact information. Donna, let us know how people can reach you. Sure. It's Donna Tosi, T-O-C-C-I, and my email is tidbitsandmore at gmail.com. That's great. Please do great. send the emails. Excellent. Carlton? Email is Carlton Reed, all one word, and it's R E I D, the Scottish way, spelling Reed, at mac.com, M A C. All those lovely Apple products. And uh, my uh, daily website, website is mikebiz.com. And my podcast site, which is, is, is nearly there, apart from that uh, hamburger girl, <laughs> is quickrelease.tv. And Donna, I'm sorry, let's mention your blog as well. Sure. It's, um, it is pitiful right now, but it is uh, tidbitsandmore.blogspot.com, and uh, I will be posting soon. Great. And uh, Tim Groff. You can find me at crookedcog.com. The podcast is crookedcogpodcast.com. And uh, send me an email at tim at crookedcog.com. Excellent. I already mentioned my email, but my show, of course, is The Fredcast, and that's at www.thefredcast.com. Once again, uh, a big thank you to our panelists, Carlton Reed, Donna Tosi, and Tim Grawl, and for Tim Jackson in in Taiwan. Thanks for trying, but unfortunately that that didn't work tonight. Um, Thank you to all of our listeners for staying subscribed and for listening to the show and telling your friends about us. And if you've got a chance, we would appreciate it if you went over to iTunes and wrote a review of the show because those sorts of things keep more listeners coming. So once again, thanks a lot for listening. We'll see you all next time. In the meantime, get out there and ride.